0: I mean, how much more data and evidence can we show that caging a person for 23 hours a day is inhumane?
1: Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Data is a primary tool used by people trying to reform the American criminal legal system. And the data that that system generates points overwhelmingly to the same conclusion— that the system is not leading to greater safety, and that it's inflicting often tremendous harm on the people that it touches. But efforts to make that point using numbers often fail to stick. You'll hear one of the guests on today's show refer to Groundhog Day, the feeling that we keep having, and mostly losing, the same arguments decade after decade. Right now, with a national spike in crime most likely brought on by the pandemic, the reform movement seems to be back on its heels. In New York, just after we recorded this episode, the Governor confirmed a plan to push for a significant rollback of bail reforms passed in 2019, reforms which have already been weakened once before. And this despite the fact that data on the reforms couldn't be clearer. There is no evidence connecting them to the spike in crime, and clear evidence that when they were allowed to work as intended, they were keeping people out of jail simply because they couldn't afford bail. So what is the role of data in influencing policy and the public's perception of the justice system? And if not about data, what kind of stories should we be telling? We have two great guests for today's episode. Christina Greer is an associate professor of political science at Fordham University. She focuses in part on urban politics and quantitative methods. And she's a frequent and incisive media commentator. And John Pfaff, also at Fordham, He's a professor of law and a self-described quant, Um, that is someone whose lens on the legal system is chiefly through numbers, but uh, he's also, as you'll hear, a sharp political analyst. He was on the show in 2018 to talk about his book, Locked In, on the outsized power of prosecutors. I started by asking them, how responsive is the system and the people who operate it to the evidence of what it's actually doing? John Pfaff speaks first.
2: Data does work on sort of micro changes, right? If you have a relatively progressive police chief who wants to do policing, right, staying in that silo, but do it better, right, we do know some things work better than others. I think you see states and cities adopting policies that are better because there's data showing they're better. You, know, you see the rise of cognitive behavioral therapy because we know it has positive impacts from studies that have shown that. Right? I think data can work there. I think as we should get to the bigger issue. Should we upend this whole system altogether and start from scratch? That's where it becomes much more an issue of, of politics. But even there, I think where I see the data matter, and it's why I don't view my hundreds of thousands of hours on Twitter as a total waste of time and total abnegation of my parenting responsibilities, <laughs> is that if you convince the journalists that there's another narrative out there, the anecdotes they start telling will shift. Right? And I think we have, not great, but to somewhat seen a shift in how journalists talk anecdotally about the system, and that I think have a bigger long-run impact than the actual you know, table 64 of some peer-reviewed paper saying it's 7.2, not 9.6, but it can shift the narrative in a longer run with some work.
0: So many political scientists are wholly disinterested in politics they're not interested in like the actual people. So when we talk about systems and institutions, I'm like, well, people make up the systems. People make up the institutions. They actually make up the rules. You know, it's like, well, the law says. I'm like, someone made that law. Someone changed that law to either make it better or worse for a particular group of people. Talking to a returned citizen, and I, I like to use, you know, instead of ex-con or ex-felon, it's like a returned citizen back to his or her community. and. He said one of the main reasons that he kind of like got himself together and really just made a concerted effort to never return to prison is because so many of the corrections guards would look at them and say like, you just bought me a new boat. You just bought me a new car. Like the more of you people from downstate who come up here, you know, it's like our restaurants and our hotels and motels. It's like we rely on you, you know, Negroes and Latinos to be here. So the racial and class implications of these quote-unquote systems that are ruled by individuals that have real deep-seated historical racist and classist foundations make it such that these conversations that we're having feel like Groundhog's Day.
1: But so, I mean, given all of this, you know, the kind of historical and economic reasons you guys have both laid out, like that underpin support for the status quo, do do you worry then that the sort of reform movement or the left more generally is putting too many eggs in the basket of you know, data and evidence-based policymaking. I mean, you take, you know, measures for justice, an organization that's really committed to criminal justice data. Their mission statement is, you know, good data and good use of it are the only way our criminal justice system can improve. And I'm not, I don't want to just pick on them. I mean, where I work, the Center for Court Innovation, we've said similar things. But from a communication perspective, to is that just too narrow a, a theory of change to take on what, what you guys are talking about?
2: I guess I'd say I don't think we should just focus on them, right? I I say as a quant and someone who very much believes all of that, I don't think it was the quantitative people who got bail reform, right? The people in the streets pushing for it, who are going to those meetings in Albany and pushing their state reps and are telling their state reps, we'll keep voting for you if you keep bail reform in place. I think they got us bail reform far more than than the quant types did. And these things aren't independent, right? That the quant types provide political cover for the journalists, provide cover for the politicians who are being lobbied by people below it. It's a dynamic, complicated system.
0: You mean your ordered probed and ordered logits aren't moving the needle? I,
2: I th- <laughs> they should, they really, really should, but I fear they are not.
1: Hey, hey, what did I say about technical speak? Come on.
0: <laughs> right. But I, I think, you know, as, as John says, you know, obviously journalists and politicians need to have some sort of quantitative measure because they will be asked certain questions. But I think, one, a lot of folks don't, I mean, we all work with data. A lot of folks don't know how to really read or interpret data. So unless you have a journalist who can walk regular folks through the data, the data means nothing. I definitely think that, you know, sometimes the lived experiences and the stories of individuals who are returning citizens or who have been affected by Rikers or some sort of jail system or probation efforts, they can actually... Help people see that they're real individuals behind these institutions. So, when we hear from like mothers or grandmothers or siblings who have essentially lost a loved one for 15 years, like what must that feel like to essentially have someone who is just gone because you don't have the economic means to go visit them, to support them? And then when they come back, you know, if you live in public housing, they might not be able to live with you. So, they're still gone. So, those stories have, as as I've seen in, in my conversations, have really affected journalists and how they think about the institutions and the systems and recognize that there are people who are in them and there are people who are upholding them.
1: Yeah, I mean, on the bail reform point, I mean, I take, John, your point very well that it's not quantitative labor that won the bail reform that it has across the country, and nor is it data that is protecting the reforms once they get made, right? I mean, the data is very strong that bail reform is working right that people who get out only two percent that's or less that's a tiny percentage or well you're going to question my stats which is your job are rearrested for a violent felony so go ahead and question them but we're still talking about a very small number the data is clear the reforms are working but that's not the way it's playing out in the public square at all it seems to me yeah i
2: mean first with that two percent number and i say this is someone who's used that two percent number now has come to realize that two percent of wrong. <laughs> right, the 2% error comes from this website, by right, the CJA, with the, the, you probably know the acronym better than I do. With the Criminal
1: Justice Agency. Thank you.
2: And there comes from people out on parole in a given month, people out on bail, on pre-trial release in a given month, and the number of arrests made that month. It's a, a, a conflation of sort of stock, we call sort of stock and flow. If you're out on pre-trial release for seven months, you show up in seven of those months, right? Each month you're out, but the arrest happens in a given month right? And so it's it's not a great match. Um, and the 2% actually is probably too low. And I think this is one of the problems we have with data also in the criminal legal space is that our data isn't such shambles and such um, that it's so disastrous. That's hard to ever know actually what's going on in the first place. And it's easy to get things wrong.
1: Right. But I mean, w- we can say with some database certainty that bail reform is not behind, you know, the spike in shootings, the spike in murders that has Taken place in jurisdictions across the country, right? I mean, as opposed to the opponents of bail reform who are saying that, we can say the data shows that's not likely to be the case, right?
2: States that did not have bail reform, states that did have bail reform, all saw spikes in homicides and shootings. Cities with aggressive DAs, non-progressive DAs, tough on crime cops, less tough on crime. Cops are still tough on crime. Spikes in homicides, right? So the, the idea that we're going to pin it all back to bail reform is going to be almost impossible to be true. Is there some connection there? It's not impossible to say that yet. I'd be surprised if there's any real effect. And again, you have to balance all those effects against all the cleef broaders as well. And we never do that, right? The fundamental failing of all of our cost-benefit analyses every single time is that we compare, like, the Expect a crime reduction savings from someone being in prison against the fiscal cost of that person being in prison. We spend a dollar in prisons, we get a dollar 13 less in crime. That means the fact that Cleve Browder, George Floyd, they aren't in those equations at all. The stress Black parents feel telling their kids don't talk to a cop. Not in that equation at all, right? The fact that young men say they feel like they're being sexually assaulted when they get frisked because the cops literally grab their genitals as they frisk them, not in our cost-benefit at all, right? So all of our cost-benefit equations are fundamentally flawed. Um, And So even if we show some small connection between bail reform and any sort of violence, we have to balance that against all those toxic, lethal, life-shortening events that Rikers and other prisons do on the flip side, and we have no data on that.
1: I mean, this kind of gets into another potential weakness of focusing too much on data, right, is that we have a fundamental failure of empathy from the kind of wider American public for people who are in jails and prisons. There's a very clear narrative in American history that jails and prisons are going to make us more safe, and that they protect us from the bad people who are in them, and we are the good people who are outside of them, right? That's a very powerful narrative, and it's got economic origins behind it, too, as Christina has been saying. But, you know, we now know there are data, there are increasing studies that show that's most likely not the case, right? That the jails and prisons are not making us safer. They're disrupting people's lives. It's huge trauma. It's making it more likely that when people get out, as almost everyone eventually does, they're going to get rearrested. So making us all, you know, less safe, along with all the terrible uh, effects on people that John was just talking about. But how do we, it's such an intuitive narrative that jails equal safety, how do we take that the, on?
0: But all of the measures show that that is just not true. Yeah, It just like, feels like
1: people aren't hearing those you know, measures. It doesn't have an emotional valence. But it's the know.
0: same way that we consistently ignore data as a nation. You know, like most people believe in a woman's right to choose in this country, yet and still, look at what's happening Roe v. Wade, right? Most people believed in marriage equity years before we ever saw it in the States. So like the the institutions are always so far behind public opinion and public sentiment in this nation. But I think John's point can't be you know, underscored enough. Like the number of people who are traumatized when they were in jail and or prison, whether it's from guards or other inmates who they themselves are traumatized too. And now they're going back into their communities carrying that trauma and that anger and that fear. And so we have to understand that there are all these preexisting forces that have that have been in certain communities that are just hyper-surveilled and over-abused and over-traumatized by a series of failed institutions in this nation. I'm, I'm not making excuses for people who commit crime by any stretch of the imagination, but like the deck that certain people have looks nothing like the deck that we have. And we're making it despite that. You know, my sister's a medical physician and we talk about health outcomes all the time. It's like, You know, we wonder why even Black professors, it's like, why do Black professors die so early? This is a kick-ass profession. Like, we should be, you know, 95 years old and like Black women in the profession barely making it to their mid-60s. We're trying to figure this out as Black women, you know, across disciplines. And it's like, because we're internalizing all this stuff. I never grew up in the projects. I never grew up in a, a poor family, but I feel intrinsically connected to people who look like me, who are being abused. Because at the end of the day, black people in America are just under a gun that this country has just never, the anti-blackness of this country has never, ever gone away. It's from the epic origins and it's still here. And we see it in like every single institution and system that we come in front of.
1: Yeah. I think I've seen that, that health effect on black Americans referred to as weathering, which seems like a good metaphor because it is like the weather, right? Yeah. Sunny or rainy, the weather is there.
2: I think along the, along those lines, I think it's worth noting that if you look at, we can get a big debate on who is or who is not a progressive DA. But if you look at who our progressive DAs are, where actually our progressive DAs are, Brooklyn, San Francisco, St. Louis, Baltimore, what those cities, Philadelphia, uh, what those cities all have in common is that they don't have suburbs. We elect progressive DAs in places where white people had the least amount of voting power, right? It's because for the residents of Philadelphia, right, people in the, in the, one of the amazing things about the electoral map from the Larry Krasner's primary campaign, if you overlay the districts in Philadelphia that Krasner won and where shootings in Philadelphia took place, Krasner wins all the districts that have the shootings and loses the ones that don't, right? The people experiencing violence rejected tough on crime because for them, it's not about data, right? They see their cousin, their brother, their uncle, their son, their nephew get locked up needlessly for too long for reasons that don't matter, come back worse than before, nothing's made better. They themselves are more likely victims and feel how this process doesn't actually make them feel any better. If not, makes them feel worse. And they consistently choose more progressive DAs. When the white voters and suburban voters, and this is much of an abstract concept, get into the picture, they're much more swayed by sort of the anecdote, of fear and things crumble, right? And so, you know, again, what does data do? I, I'm increasingly convinced data can't do that much. What we have to do is is cut out the people who are don't experience this on a day-to-day basis because their people experience it, understand the trade-offs. They live the trade-offs in a way that the suburbanites just don't, right? And for them, again, they, it's much more of an abstraction. They don't have that empathy. The empathy gap is huge and vast and perhaps empirically, you know, with data insurmountable.
0: Well, I mean, that's how I'm explaining to so many people who are like, how did Eric Adams become mayor? And it's like, he knows how to talk about crime to various groups of New Yorkers. He was very clear to certain communities. He's like, no, we're not going to decrease the police on subways. Like, we need more police. And that's something where, let's be clear, that's the dirty little secret. Progressives like police too. They like them in their neighborhoods because they don't see police as a threat. But I think, you know, Eric Adams can talk to New Yorkers and it's just like... You like safety. And as a former cop himself for over two decades, he equates policing with safety. But also he's able to sort of, I mean, this is like the the magical wand of Eric Adams. He also talks about, you know, education and like putting money into other services, whether he'll do it is a different podcast, but, you know, a holistic conversation. But the root cause of that conversation is, but we're still not going to get rid of police while we're trying to figure out all these other issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, Adams is a very effective communicator, and he tells stories very well in in ways that data often doesn't manage to do, right? Like, after those two NYPD police officers were shot in Harlem, and that's like a kind of complex and deeply tragic story, you know, Eric Adams came out with this statement, it's our city against the killers. I mean, that sort of makes the whole city a victim, which is a very powerful notion, and it creates a very powerful narrative and a very powerful lesson that he wants people to take from it. And I just don't know how data can punch through against that kind of communication.
2: I think it's even more systemic than that, though, right? Because I don't want to give let's not give Adams too much credit here as a politician, uh, because we're seeing the same pattern all across the country. Los Angeles, San Francisco, progressive D.A., very conservative mayor. Chicago, Lori Lightfoot versus Kim Fox. You're seeing it in New Orleans, you're seeing it in Los Angeles. Like most major cities you're seeing tougher on crime mayors and in the same cities that have very progressive DAs, even though many of those places are being elected by the same people. And I think it does reflect a much deeper ambivalence about policing than about prisons, right? There, we talk about sort of criminal legal reform, like this consent bipartisan consensus. It's been for a very narrow aspect, just for prisons, and just maybe for nonviolent and drug offenses, not even violence is really on the map at all. You get to policing, people get a lot more confused. We just don't really offer any of the options, right? Everyone wants something else. When you ask the question, do you want more policing? The, the subtext to that question is policing or crime. Those are your choices. And obviously, you're going to choose policing, right? Um, so the, it's a tough question to disentangle what's going on, but it has led to mayors who are systematically more tough than the DAs in, in a way that's not just... A random good politician, or something. There's something systemic about the 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 way things are fracturing, even amongst Democrats.
0: You know, I'm not trying to give Eric Adams too much credit, but I will say this: Black voters are incredibly complex voters because we have to not only factor in our choices, we have to understand white people and their capacity for change. Right? Ask Bernie Sanders, who didn't bother to go to South Carolina, but that's a different podcast. So we That's have a to lot of different factor.
1: podcasts I gotta make. <laughs> right? <at this> point. <laughs>
0: Come on, that. <Matt>. I'm <laughs> keeping you busy. So I mean, we have to factor in our wants and needs and also white people while we go to the polls. But I, I do think that there's a real binary that is set up where it's either you want police or you want crime. And that is that is a, a false binary conversation that we're having. And so Matt, as you ask us about the data, the data, a lot of people don't care about the data because they care about their lived experience. And the lived experience doesn't matter if you're one of the the 10% that's a victim of a crime or the 90% that has has never experienced a crime.
1: Yeah, actually, I I wanna pick up on that lived experience point, and it it goes back to something John was saying about the distinction that's made between nonviolent and violent offenses, and that there's maybe a fragile consensus, reform consensus around nonviolent stuff, but that tends to stop the moment violence becomes part of the conversation, yet you both know if this country doesn't deal with people with violent charges, you're never going to make a significant dent in mass incarceration, right? Unless you start giving people much shorter sentences and putting fewer people in prison to begin with. But in that conversation, when violence has this strong like emotional power, that's where it just feels like making an argument from data gets, is just easily overwhelmed, I guess.
2: I think people have this vision that you know, violent crimes go to prison. Right, that's just what happens. so I try to point out, look, you know, about 50% of all assaults are reported, about 30% of all rapes are reported to the police, right? So already a huge chunk never even show up on the police radar. Of those assaults that are reported, about half of those make an arrest for rapes is about 30%. So now we're down to only about 25% of all assaults produce an arrest, and about 10% of all rapes produce an arrest. Now we drop about a third of those in the prosecution process, a quarter of those, right? So now we're down to like, 12% of all assaults and about 5% of all rapes are even making it to the prosecution level, right? So you know, we have this vision, like, you know, if we don't send people for violence to prison, everything falls apart. And we have to stress that we really set, we have this vast system with actually very few percent of those people in prison, right? It's still far too many and, and the harms are, are vast and we should have far fewer, but it's not like somehow, like we've got all the people causing harms locked up and that's where our fairly safe, as things go, world has been for a while now, right? We get there, the informal controls are far greater and they're, they've been far greater work all along. Why don't we try building those
1: up? Do you have thoughts, Christina, about how we can sort of advance this goal of keeping people, you know, with more serious crimes, keeping them out of prison in this current political climate?
0: Yeah, I think it's really hard to have these conversations and really move the needle when people are in the midst of, feeling as though crime is spiking, whether it's real or perceived. And so all it takes is one example, because whenever you ask someone who's like, we, you know, it's so dangerous now. It's like, well, how is it dangerous for you? That's always my question. It's like, well, my husband's brother's cousin's second cousin, next door neighbor's boyfriend's sister's brother, had, you know, they were mugged. And it's like, okay, so we're like seven people removed from someone you allegedly know. And so I still, I put that in the perception piece, right? And, and of course, when I say these things, I get lots of hate mail where it's like, you know, you're not a victim of violent crime and just wait until you're a victim and then you'll be sympathetic. It's like, I'm not not being sympathetic. It's just, I think that there is some hysteria that a lot of folks have where they think that the crime is much closer to them. And it's like, and the people who actually are living under crime have been living under it for so long, actually. There's spikes in their neighborhood, but those were already sort of high crime neighborhoods. It's just these kind of one off instances that happen to people where, quote unquote, crime shouldn't happen to. Because that's the thing. There's been high crime in all of these cities, relatively speaking. Like, no, I'm not talking about 90s numbers, but like we still have a few hundred murders every year in New York City. I mean, it's, it's not nothing, but it's been in the same neighborhood. So those people are still living under the threat of it. And so I think the crux of what I'm what I'm always asking is in a country that has a longstanding history of white supremacy and anti-Black racism, patriarchy and capitalism, thank you Bell Hooks for breaking that all down for us, how do we look at these problems without making sure that those four legs of the table are always in our view?
2: I think, and I would add to all that, I think it's important to appreciate, especially these days, how much Criminal legal policy is driven not by crime, but by abstract senses of fear.
1: Well, abstract and sometimes kind of ginned up, right? I mean, there's so much media coverage that then feeds perceptions that then feeds polling. And but
2: this is even more abstract than that, right? So criminal legal policy is an emotional policy area, and we tend to respond to our big emotional shifts. We're terrified of terrorism, so everyone goes to prison, right? The financial system is falling apart, so everybody comes out because you can't afford any of this anymore, and none of it is cold and calculating. It's all. Deeply emotional, uh, which means I think the data people we on the margins trying to make sure that when things fall apart, one or the other, the narrative doesn't shift too far out of balance. I sort of try and put some limits on what you know journalists and things will say, but it, it, I think it's important to always understand how purely emotional so much of this policy is.
1: I mean, it feels like we're in a moment right now where the reform movement is kind of cowed and back on its heels somewhat, and you know, you've got President Biden talking about you know defund the police in this State of the Union. You know, even though defund the police n- never really made it into any kind of uh, meaningful policy. So, to the extent there is a kind of, I don't even want to say resurgence of the status quo, because I'm not sure it retreated much. But in terms of understanding the waves that take place, is it is it partly like a, a kind of backlash against the temporary openness that happened after the murder of George Floyd, or is it you know the bail reform in New York, which was actually a significant fig- a significant victory in some ways, is is a kind of backlash moment in that sense, Christina? Do you think?
0: I think so. And I mean, I think, you know, as I said before, a lot of people like these these reforms in theory until they actually have to be confronted with, you know, a slight discomfort. Which um, which they
1: are several times a week on the cover of the New York Post, right?
0: Right. Uh, and the Post, you would think that, you know, this is like apocalyptic. But, you know, all it takes, though, is like one mentally challenged person on the subway. And it's like, this city is so unsafe. And it's like, well, you know, yes, there are definitely unhoused individuals, many of whom or some of whom have, you know, mental health challenges and our shelter system is off. Our homeless services are off. I mean, if we were looking at this as a holistic problem, we could solve a lot of this stuff because we could head things off the pass and actually get people good education and good housing stock and all the things. But we haven't decided to invest in that. We've actually decided to invest in the back end, which is Rikers and and prisons. So I do think that some of this pendulum swing from all this you know, activism in the summer of 2020, where you saw a lot of Black folks were like, okay, you know, sure, have your little Black box or whatever on Instagram, and all of a sudden we get Juneteenth. But no, we we weren't asking for Juneteenth, first of all. (laughs) We're asking for equity, decency, and peace and justice. But no, give us a, a random holiday that everybody gets to have. Okay, sure. Again, completely missing the point, right? So it's like, let's just make sure, you know, Black people don't riot. So here's a holiday that nobody asked for without ever having substantive change. And so I think we've gone from, you know, June of 2020 with folks in the street to now, you know, March of 2022 where folks are feeling ever so slightly uncomfortable and all those calls for defunding the police are now a lot more quiet and a lot of folks are like, "Well, it's not the worst thing, right?" And so I think we On the people on the left who, you know, I tend not to trust because I am on the left. I think that it's a lot of fair weather friendships and it's okay if things change as long as nothing in their world changes ever. So I don't know. I think my patience level is just, it's just low because I knew that all those, all that quote unquote support, which I put in very loose uh, quotes, in June of 2020 was not going to be longstanding, especially when I knew that crime was going to spike because unemployment is high. And all the data shows that like when people are feeling desperate economically, they they do desperate things. That's just what happens. They start stealing packages. They start running up on folks and taking phones because we're all walking around with $500 phones, right? And so all these expensive things that we have on our person, you know, they're liable to get got. And that's just what people do to survive. And I'm not saying it's right, but it's the reality of the situation. And I I knew that a lot of that support in 2020 would be short lived.
1: I mean, John, is there a way to use data to, you know, sort of help the uncomfortable, inconstant justice reform supporter at this moment? Or is it really we sort of have to wait out the panic or?
2: Yeah, I think it helps them until the moment they confront something that makes them uncomfortable, right? Like they're okay with the abstract, but when they see something happen or read about it or feel too close to home, then the data data just has a hard time like penetrating, right? I mean, I think it is much more about how can data sort of shape the people who shape the longer run narrative, right? And I, and I will say one of those rare glimmers of hope that. I cling to desperately just to get to the day, right? You know, so there was the recent case of the person with the mental health problem who shoved woman onto the train tracks, right, and killed her. This happens every year, but this one got attention for a confluence of, of reasons.
1: In New York City, yeah.
2: In New York City, right? And, you know, so, so immediately you see a, a demand for more policing to make sure this doesn't happen, ignoring the fact there were two officers on the platform where she got shoved, right? And so the cops were literally right there. And I mean, you can't do anything about this, right? But... You saw some media demand for more policing, make sure this doesn't happen. While a bunch of sort of more European-looking people are saying, look, every other country in the world that with the subway system has big glass doors in front of the platform, so you can't, no one can jump in front of the tracks. So you can't get shoved, you can't jump, you can't get pushed. And I tweeted about that and got mocked for being some you know, European socialist doesn't understand how things work. But now we're not seeing the police hiring, but we are seeing the MTA promise to roll this out in you know three stations because the MTA does everything at 10 times the budget. Europe does it so maybe you're slower. But it was the kind of thing where there's this immediate call for policing, and the policy response wasn't the cops, right? It was something else. And I think it's a sign that, you know, is the slow sort of shift in, in the overall narrative that happens, where there, there is a more often than before, a slight pause before the immediate jump to policing by the people who, who create the narrative, which is, I think, where, where the, any sort of long-run change that's going to happen has to come
1: from. To, to try to wrap up here, I'm I'm really curious to hear what both of you have to think about this. I mean, whether you are worried at all that this evidence-based movement that you hear so much, it's such a buzzword, like in amongst the reform community, you know, has the kind of evidence-based data-driven conversation hijacked the reform movement in a sense and, and made it like that we're too afraid of to sort of lead with our values, you know, and say like, look, caging people is bad regardless of what the data tells us. We talk about this country
0: as like a lofty country, but I mean, when have we ever lived up to our values? When? Like this is the closest we've ever been and we're in dire straits. This is the the best time to be a black person in this country. (laughs) Like, think about that. So if that's the case, you have to ask yourself like, what have been the values of our nation? We have always locked people up in internment camps sponsored by You know, FDR did great things in World War II, also at the same time put Japanese, Italian, and German folks in internment camps. I mean, how much more data and evidence can we show that caging a person for 23 hours a day is inhumane? So, I mean, I think that values question is always hard for me because to me this country has very little values. And this is why I read Mark Twain all the time because I felt like he he gets it. And he gets it in a particular time period. He was always broke, so he had to write for, like, many audiences. So... I read him a lot to sort of help me understand that particular moment in time where like that was the best moment, right? That reconstruction era. It's like, and then we saw what happened after that. You
2: no, know, everything Christine says why well, I don't let my students ever use the word we in class, right? You need to tell me who we are and who us is because there is no we in us. Um I think there's something similar. We say, know, what is its goal for the reform movement? There isn't an it there. And you know, I think even the word evidence-based is kind of tricky and normatively laden and contestable. And you can run like a, a, a randomized trial, of like policing tactics or bail reform or something like that, that's evidence-based and that gets like the gold star and that limits the kind of questions you can ask. Right. And so, yes, do the people put a tremendous emphasis on sort of evidence-based, I, I am someone who falls in that category sometimes, blind themselves to bigger questions. Yeah. But for those narrow questions that lend themselves to like, the evidence-based experimentation, I think it is useful. I think when your goal becomes bigger, right, upending that silo altogether, right, then I think data matters less. That's the realm of pure politics, and politics has never been a realm where data matters. And the politics here get really complicated, right? You know, on the one hand, using these evidence-based approaches can make the institutions we have more humane, more effective. It doesn't make them effective or humane, right? It makes them better than they currently are, but that might run the risk of legitimating them in the longer run. And so if you legitimate them the longer run because they're better than they were before, then you get stuck with something that sucks for a really long period of time. If you don't use your data to make them better, then you are in prisons now, suffer more. And how do you like, navigate a system where the data makes a terrible thing less terrible, but there are people in that terrible thing now for whom we should be careful not to make things more terrible while trying to make sure there's fewer people in that in the long run. And it leaves my head spinning as to what you do here.
1: Like in terms of narrative, it can feel like the right has this very simple, if sort of factitious story to tell when it comes to to criminal justice, right? About it's sort of an eye for an eye and that the story on the left is more complicated. Christine has made the point about all the legs of the that have created this terrible chair of classism and racism. And does it feel like the material on the left is just sort of harder to demagogue?
0: Well, I think the right is just really straightforward. I mean, all of their critiques are racist and classist. So if they can create a boogeyman, it's just like, you know, these Negroes and Latinos and immigrants are coming to get you, and they really don't care about poor whites, never have. And LBJ broke that down for us. Even even poor whites don't want to pay attention to the fact that they're poor whites, right? And so as LBJ says, if you can convince the poorest white man he's better than the Negro, then you can pick his pockets all day long. And so Republicans have kind of mastered that. And- They have shown that they are not above just flat out lying, period. So they will say that, you know, there's so much crime. I mean, you remember in MS-13, you know, Donald Trump essentially made it seem that Long Island was like under siege with all these, you know, immigrants from the border coming in caravans, which was not true, period. And then we have to ask, well, if you would fund, you know proper immigration reform or education or all of the things that we know make communities safe because there are lots of safe communities in this country. If you would just do that for everyone else, then maybe we wouldn't have these problems. That's not advantageous politically. You have to have a boogeyman and a straw man, and Republicans have kind of mastered that uh, seamlessly over time.
2: I think also when it comes to crime, Republicans have the benefit of engaging in sort of cost-benefit discussions where they don't have to talk about the costs and the Democrats do, right? It's a lot easier to have a cost-benefit conversation when you only talk about the benefits, right? And so to the extent Republicans aren't trying to get the votes of Black people in general and certainly Black people live in the cities, right? They can tell their white suburbanites, prison makes you safer, period. Easy narrative, done. Because the costs of that are born people who aren't going to vote for them anyway. Democrats who are trying to get the votes to oftentimes the more urban populations Black voters to get motivated to get out to vote, right? They have to pay the costs and the benefits, right? We want to get crime down, but we do crime down in a way that doesn't hurt the community so much. They are compelled to tell a more complicated story because they, their politicians are operating in the environment where those costs and benefits are born. I'm sure you can find other issues where the Democrats can pull the entire benefit thing and Republicans get tied up in some sort of weird, like we're dealing with benefit and cost kind of knots, right? And, and so... There's, there's a structural explanation for why their narrative is easier, right? Because they, they get to ignore the cost part because they don't feel the costs. And that automatically gives anyone an upper hand they can ignore 50% of a cost-benefit analysis.
1: Well, guys, I really should let you go. So I just want to thank you guys both so much for participating in this. It's just been a, a really great and illuminating conversation. Christina, John, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks so much.
1: That was my conversation with John Pfaff and Christina Greer. John is a professor of law at Fordham University and the author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. You can hear him talk about his book in a 2018 episode of New Thinking. It was part of our series on prosecutor power. And Christina Greer is an associate professor of political science at Fordham and the author of Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. You can also hear her on my favorite podcast about New York City politics, FAQ NYC. And for more information about today's show, go to courtinnovation.org newthinking. Special thanks this episode to Maura O'Neill at the Frameworks Institute and to Jocelyn Fontaine at Arnold Ventures. Today's episode was produced by Julian Adler and myself, and it was edited by me. Samia Amin-Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.